I think we've come to chapter 20. And so we're in the middle of Paul's third missionary journey. Um, they often say that he had four, but the fourth one he was being hauled to Rome to stand trial. So this was the last journey that, that uh, he actually had planned himself. There we go. So I think we'll have a picture of the map here in a minute just to go over that. My laser pointer was flaky before the service, so I might have to just like jump up and touch the places. But chapter 20, um, if you remember where we left off last week, uh, Paul was in Ephesus, and a riot happened there. A lot of things were unfolding at that time. And uh, chapter 20, it says, verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed for three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So it was during this time, just these few months, that he wrote Second Corinthians, probably the book of Romans as well. Now, he was, see if the green light will work. Oh, it's sort of working. <laughs> so he, Ephesus is right here. This is modern-day Turkey, or what they used to call it, Asia Minor. So he was here, and you know he had been here before, but he was here for a good period of time after having come from his home base at Antioch all the way across here. So now he's deciding to go over to Macedonia, which is this area of Greece. Really, this shows Thrace over here, but... In those days, really, it was just um, the southern part, Achaia and Macedonia, those two primary um, provinces of Greece. This is Greece here. As you know, this is Turkey. Uh, this is Italy right here. So I just had a piece of pizza. I should know that. But um, so what he's going to do is he wants to head over here and hit these churches. And you see that he's, he's, uh, he's going to do that make a quick run through these churches and come down into, here's Athens right here and here's Corinth right here. And so he's going he's gonna to come down, hit these places, go back up through these cities and come back to head to Syria, which is right here. But he ends up uh, following along the coast here and ultimately taking a, a sea route and comes and lands at Tyre instead. So... We'll follow along. You just get the lay of the land here. And um, Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. You read about a lot of these guys in other, other places or at least several of them. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. So... All these guys were with them, but they decided to hang out at Troas until um, because they knew he was coming back this way. So most of them waited here. Just Luke obviously went with them, and a, a few other people did as they headed over to Macedonia. And when we sailed away from Philippi, after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days joined them at Troas, where we stayed seven days. 
Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So he's in Troas right now, and this is the kind of story that pastors love. Um, He was just going all night, and it was midnight, and there were a lot of lamps in the upper room, probably not a lot of ventilation, and so a guy ends up passing out. Um, And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep. You ever do that in church? (laughs) Yes, you have. I've seen some of you. Um, Sometimes I think I've done it while I'm preaching. But it's just, you know, it was was long. I can't blame Eutychus at all. Um, He was just, if you, what I tell people always, they come up and go, oh, I'm so sorry, you probably noticed me, you know, falling asleep. Hey, if I can give you a little nap, great. You know, if you fall asleep, then you probably needed the rest, and I'm happy to contribute. So don't ever feel, you know, we'll wake you up if you snore, but other than that, go ahead and rest on. But don't sit in a window in an upper room because he was sinking to sleep and he was overcome by sleep and Paul just kept on speaking and speaking. You know how that goes. And he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. <clears throat> but Paul went down and fell on him. He, he probably walked down. I doubt if he just jumped three stories down. Um, although that would finish him off. And he, and he said... Uh, Don't trouble yourselves, for his life is in him. He's not dead. And when he had come up, had broken bread and eaten and talked a long while, even till daylight, he departed. So the kid was okay, and um, nobody was worried, and so then Paul ended up leaving. Brought the young man in alive, and they were not a little comforted. They were very comforted. Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, there intending to take Paul on board, for so he had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. So Paul had, um, during this area here, um, here's where Assos is right there next to Troas, Paul had decided instead of taking the boat that he would actually just go ahead and walk during some of this area, and then he'd jump back on the boat. The rest of them were on the, most of them were on the boat, so... So he uh, was planning on coming there, and we sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. The next day, we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he wouldn't have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So remember, they're up here. Paul wants to get over here to Jerusalem as quick as possible. So they're heading down through these little cities along the way. And uh, he ends up landing here in Miletus, which is south of Ephesus. Now remember, he had lived in Ephesus for quite a while and knew a lot of the people there. But he didn't want to get delayed. These guys really loved him, and he didn't want to get stuck in Ephesus. So he actually went past Ephesus to Miletus so that he wouldn't be delayed because he really was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. But from Miletus, in verse 17, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. He was in the neighborhood, and he didn't want to get caught up with meetings and, and uh, make a scene. There had already been quite a trouble, as we saw last last time in, there in Ephesus. So 
Instead, he just thought, well, let me just talk to the leaders. Paul had a sense through a lot of prophecies and stuff, he kind of knew that he didn't have a long time to live. And so he figured, he loved these people in Ephesus, but at the same time he realized, this is probably going to be the last time I see you. And so he wanted to talk to the leaders, and so he had them come down south to Miletus. Verse 18, when they had come to him, he said to them, you know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you. He said, you you remember what I've been like. Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, you remember what it was like. Now, when he's saying that he got hassled by the Jews, it wasn't by all the Jews, obviously. There were just some Jews who really resented him because he had been, Paul was raised as a leader among the Jews. And he was so devout that he was busy persecuting Christians. But then he met Jesus on that road to Syria and everything changed. So some of his old buddies really resented him. And a lot of times you find that the people who are maddest at you are the people who you have moved on from where they are, and they kind of resent that you think you're better than they are, you think you're uppity or whatever. And so those were the people who were hassling him, and he said, I, I was just serving the Lord. I lived among you. We could slow down and just talk about what a minister is supposed to be like from this whole address to the Ephesian elders um, And you could stay in this passage for months. There's so many things here. But notice, he lived among them. He didn't try to keep a distance and stay above them or beyond them or have an unlisted address. He said, I was around you. I didn't pretend anything. I hung with you. And I served the Lord with all humility. Also a rare rare quality, I think, that, that capacity to be able to minister to people and not come off like you're better than they are. So often, and I mean, this is something that we all always have to be careful of. You go from, you really care about somebody who's hurting and you want to help them and then you're telling them what they should do and the next thing you know, it just starts to sound like preaching. It just starts to sound like you're lecturing. It starts to sound like you're saying, you know what, you need to be more like me. The last thing people want to hear when when they're hurting already is your life is really screwed up but you need to make it more like mine i mean that just comes off like okay well if you're better than i am then i don't think you understand where i'm coming from most people who are hurting already know they're messed up but paul had a way of coming to them in humility in a way of going i'm not preaching down to you. I'm not telling you you need to follow me, join me, worship me. Not at all. He goes, I'm just one of you, believe me. And he calls himself, I was the worst sinner. And he even said that about himself when he was older. He never thought he got beyond failure and mistakes. He came and and was together with them with that kind of humility. Humility with many tears and trials. You know, I think God has ways of humbling you, but personally, if I'm hurting, 
it, it helps if, I, if somebody's ministering to me who actually can cry, who actually seems like they hurt when I hurt. Um, Paul was not one of these plastic, you know, TV evangelists who just, you know, you look at him and think, I don't think this guy has a feeling in his body. I, it's kind of like that, that Hollywood Botox look, you know, where it's just like, no, he, he was a guy who, he hurt for them and they saw it. They saw him, oh, sorry, I'm sure I offended someone with that, but um, <laughs> do you really like it when your face doesn't have any expression at all? But that's okay. But um, so, but he's just like, no, I, I cried with you. I hurt, and I didn't pretend like I didn't hurt. I wasn't some kind of a ice princess. I, I was just me, and I hurt. People were after me. People were harassing me, and, I, and, and you saw that. I was nothing. I didn't try to come off like somebody special. People were plotting against me, and I kept back nothing that was helpful, verse 20. You always want to hold certain things back in any kind of a relationship um, because getting stuff off your chest always kind of makes you feel better. But holding things back makes you feel safer. So there's this constant tension in any relationship, but especially when somebody's teaching the Bible. It's like, and I go through this thing when I teach of like, should I say that? As you know, I usually do. But, but trust me, I at least think about whether I should. And also, if you heard some of the things I don't say that I think about saying, then you'd realize that I'm even more messed up than you thought. But, but he's going, I didn't hold anything back from you that was helpful. Now, a lot of times it's good to hold certain things back if it's not going to be helpful. But if it's going to help... You go, okay, I'm going to level with you here because I think this might help. Paul wasn't a guy who tried to come off like he was perfect because, frankly, if you hear some religious leader who comes off like they're perfect, that doesn't help. It really doesn't. If I, if I ever give you the impression that I'm better than you, I hurt you. I didn't help you. But Paul said, I didn't hold anything back that was helpful. I let you look at my life. I was honest with you. And he says, um, but I proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. So he not only ministered on their regular days of getting together for worship, which in general in the first century was on Sunday, but besides that, from house to house. It's one of the reasons why we really emphasize and try to get people involved in home fellowships. Because this was the pattern of the church. It's not enough just to come and get a big dose of church a couple times a week. And Paul wasn't like that. He actually went to people's houses and he could answer questions and they could have a discussion and they could share back and forth. Some of the best times you'll ever have spiritually are in somebody's house with them. And he said, I testified to the Jews and to the Greeks. He, he wasn't prejudiced. He wasn't like going, this is only for the Jews, or he wasn't saying, this isn't for the Jews. He goes, this is just good news. And I don't care whether you're a Jew or not, we're all brothers, and this is something that's for all of you. We've all been created by the same God. And that was radical in those days, because the Jews always had their own thing, and the 
the Greeks, the Romans, and the various other ethnic groups all had their own private little you know, place to relate to God. But Paul was one of the first guys who came along and he goes, everybody's welcome. This isn't about your race. This is about the fact that God loves you and Jesus died for you. And so he said, uh, I testified repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance, that is, it's possible for your life to change. You don't have to keep going the way you're going. You're messing your life up. And so often, people try to change. I mean, most people realize that they are the source of most of their problems. And so we all go through these attempts at cleaning up our act. But Paul came and actually declared to them, hey, believe me, my life has done a 180. And you can too. Things can change. And the key to it is Jesus Christ. Faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And later he makes it clear it's the gospel, but we'll see that as we come to it. So he said, I told people they were, would be able to change. He didn't tell them, you need to repent, you need to change, so much as he came and was an example of it. And he offered hope. He, he found people in a place whereby they were in a death spiral, and he said, you can get out of this. And I think every one of us who have come to a faith in Jesus Christ probably... Partly what was involved in that process was when we felt like nothing would ever change. And then all of a sudden, there's Jesus saying, I can give you a fresh start. I, it, there really is hope. There's reason to believe that your life can be better than it is. And so Paul said, I just came and I told you guys that. And he said, and, and see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem. I have to go to Jerusalem not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. He goes, I'm leaving now and I'm going to Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem hate me. And everybody's telling me, he had had several prophets, and we're going to see others who came along and said, if you go to Jerusalem, man, there's a big plot against you. They're going to take you captive. They want to kill you. So he tells the Ephesian elders, it's, it's not that I don't realize this. It's that I don't run from anybody if the Holy Spirit is leading me to go somewhere. So he said, I know what this is going to cost me. I'm going to Jerusalem with my eyes wide open. But the reason he's telling him this is he realized I'm probably not going to be in Ephesus again. And uh, chains and tribulations await me. How many of us could could go into that knowing that it was coming. But, and this is powerful, verse 24, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He said, I know what's coming, but that doesn't move me. That's not what motivates me. It's funny, if you live your life motivated purely by trying to alleviate pain, if you live your life making all your decisions based on whether or not it's going to hurt or not, you always find yourself in a spot where it hurts even more. Um, because 
there's so much damage that's done by all of the things that we do to try to self-medicate or to try to avoid you know, things that might be a threat to us. Living your life in fear is just an awful thing. It's much better to live your life going, yeah, I know it's going to hurt, but I'm still going to do what I think I'm supposed to do, and I'm not going to make all my decisions based on being paranoid. There's a scripture in Proverbs that says, the wicked flees when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. And boy, have I seen that to be true. People who nobody's even after them, but they're paranoid and they ruin their whole lives by running away from everything, running away from relationships, running away from, from the dreams of doing something more with their life, but being afraid of what it might cost. And so they end up living their lives in a little box. And Paul just goes, nah, I know where I'm going, but that's not what motivates me. That's not what moves me. Um, what moves me is I have a ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus. Jesus had spoken to him personally on a couple occasions and let him know this is what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to tell people the good news. So Paul said, I'm doing that with joy. I'm glad to be doing what I'm doing even though it's going to hurt like anything. But he said, the gospel of the grace of God. I love that. The gospel just means good news. Grace means it's free. And the fact is, it comes from God. The most powerful news we could ever receive is that the God who made us totally loves us unconditionally and just wants to give us his grace freely. You don't have to earn it. There is no religion in the world that's truly like the gospel of the grace of God. Because there's no religion, every religion out there, if they're giving something away, it's to try to get you to give something to them. There are always strings attached. But the truth of the gospel, the good news, is that this is just something God wants to do for you. Christianity is not what you need to do to get to God. Christianity is what God did to get to you. And he loves you and it's free. And Paul said, that's a message that's worth telling. And that motivates me in everything that I do. All that I ever want to do is to share that, that news. And verse 25, And indeed now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. And they're really bummed at this, we see later in the chapter. But he said, this is the last time you're going to see me. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He said, it's not my fault if you guys aren't set free. It's not my fault if you guys aren't responding to this great news of the gospel. Because man, I've told it to you as clear as I possibly could. I've told it to you in the best way that I could possibly know how. I haven't held back. And as he says, I've I've not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. There's nothing that God said that I didn't go, I better not say that because somebody might get offended. He goes, I haven't held back anything. I've told you what I knew from God. Now, there are people who take this verse and apply it to, that's why you have to teach the whole Bible. 
Um, and, and, I, and I do think teaching the whole Bible is really important. As you know, we've been eight years going through the Bible, and we're still not done. It'll take us close to nine years by the time we finish it, I think. Um, and we've gone from Genesis, we'll go all the way through, we'll finish with Revelation. Um, but obviously that's not what Paul was saying. It's a great verse for us to trumpet what we do, um, but he didn't have anywhere close to the Bible. He was writing the Bible, a lot of this, and he certainly didn't have the time to go through the entire Old Testament verse by verse. Um, but all he's saying here, really, and again, I'm totally for going through the whole Bible verse by verse. I love it. I love every word of this book. Um, but what Paul is really saying is, I didn't hold anything back from you. I shot straight with you. I was honest with you. And so he said, if you don't get it, it's not my fault. If you just continue to want to live your life destroying yourself, well, your blood is on your own hands, not mine, because I have been honest with you. I've shot straight with you. And so he says, therefore, but at the same time, I'm going to be really glad when, if I'm, if Lord willing, if I'm able to finish all the way through the Bible, so if you ever get a craving to hear what I have to say about anything in the Bible, you can always go online and get it. Um, uh, and I mean, I'm not, I don't want to die when I finish Revelation, but at the same time, it'll be a feel, good feeling of like, wow, look at what we've gone through together. But he says, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Interesting, as he's talking to the elders, as he's talking to these um, pastors, leaders, the, he says, take heed to yourselves. You need to pay attention to your own needs. You need to, until you are ministered to, you just don't have anything to share with anyone else. So it's a call really to some healthy introspection maybe on the part of leaders. It's so easy to be telling other people what to do and not doing it yourself not taking the time for yourself. Um, like Stephen Covey uses that expression of sharpening the saw because you can sit there with a dull saw and hack away all day long on a tree and you'll never cut it down. If you take a few minutes to sharpen that saw, you can cut right through the, the tree. And that's, Paul in several places shares this with ministers to take heed to yourself. You know, it sounds selfish, put yourself first. But if you don't put yourself first, you'll never be able to put anyone else anywhere else because you'll ruin your life and you'll destroy people too. And this is a tough balance to have because I think most people who, whether you are somebody who's just ministering to people as a lay person, whether you're leading a home fellowship or whether you're a pastor, whoever it is that you are, you're overwhelmed by the needs of the people. And like... Um, I read a book one time, The Jesus I Never Knew by Philip Yancey, and in there he said, every pastor that I've ever known had a Messiah complex, except the Messiah. See, Jesus didn't do that. He was never in a hurry. Think about it. He came to earth. He knew he was the Messiah. He didn't even start preaching until he was 30. And maybe even knowing that he was only going to live for three years in the ministry, and yet at the end he said, I did everything that the Father wanted me to do. 
that only happens, that kind of efficiency only happens if you take care of yourself. And it's hard because most pastors do have kind of a messianic complex, and, and many of us, and I'm certainly one of them, I can't stand to not please people. I really do want to make everyone happy. But when I try to do that, which is most of the time, people still get mad at me. And I've realized, you know what? I am, there's always going to be somebody that thinks I'm a jerk. There's always going to be somebody that thinks I'm lazy or that somebody else does this better than I do or that I don't have any business doing this. That just comes with the territory. So if I knock myself out and find out that people still don't like me, then I'm going to go, why didn't I just take care of myself and be satisfied ministering to people who are ready to hear what I have to say, but to not just let people determine my whole life? To not, you know, I feel guilty if someone emails me and I don't write back you know, the same day. And I get a lot of emails. And if I did that all the time, it's... Uh, and I'm not talking about Nigerians who want to transfer money into my account. I'm saying real people who have real needs. And yet, you know, if I, if I did that, I would do very few other things. I also have a policy that anyone who wants can make an appointment with me. Um, it's stupid, but it's my policy. Um, and people don't abuse it much, you know. And, and so, but see, to sit there and feel like, Okay, every time somebody calls, I have to return the call. Every time someone gives me a book they want me to read, I have to read it, do a book report on it, and have it ready by next Sunday. Every goofy email thing from the internet that gets sent to me, people want my feedback on it. I have to, you know, 30 times a day, I have to write back to people, please check snopes.com before you send this stuff to everyone. It's a, it's a bunch of Christian lies. But... Um, you know, that just will destroy you to try to do all of that and let other people do that. Um, And that's why Paul's just telling the elders, and this was before email, but they still had a lot of people who were making demands on their time. And he said, make sure you take care of yourself first. Make sure that you do that before everything else. If you neglect yourself, you won't be able to help anyone else either. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock everyone that you have an opportunity to minister to. Again, this is one reason why I've really pushed home fellowships. And some of you people who come on Wednesday nights also go to home fellowships, and I'm really happy about that. Um, We canceled home fellowships for the first, or we canceled Wednesday for the first 10 weeks um, of our home fellowship program because I wanted everyone to do it. And I know some of you are just like, I don't want to go to somebody's house. I don't want that I'm not looking for intimacy. I'm not looking for authenticity. And so you're really glad when I started up Wednesdays because now you have one more hour of your week when you can just sit there and soak up whatever wisdom I have and you can slip out the back door and nobody really knows you. But um, the truth is my heart is to see everyone in the body to be ministered to. And that's why I've so stressed home fellowships to you because I'm telling you, in a group this size, you can't possibly really make a lot of connections with people. And it's worse on Sunday morning with this place packed with three services and maybe you're sitting in the fellowship hall. There's just no way. And so Paul is telling these elders, take care of yourself, but also make sure that the flock has every opportunity 
to be fed and to be ministered to and encouraged and listened to and prayed for. It's not just a, an idea of make sure that you preach to them enough. I mean, today we have so much preaching on the internet. We have, um, you know, podcasts from everybody. You can turn on K-Wave all day long and hear preaching. Um, and I'm not knocking preaching. It's what I do. But at the same time, there's more to tending to people's needs than just that. And you know what? There are more needs among the flock than what I can reach and what the other pastors can reach. And each one of you has a responsibility to keep an eye on the flock. You see somebody that looks kind of bummed, just you know, to go over to them and go, hey, how's it going? And you know, of course that's risky. To approach someone that maybe you don't know very well and put your hand on their shoulder and risk a sexual harassment suit or something, I get it. I mean, nowadays, that's like you don't even want to open a door for somebody for fear that it's going to be offensive. But I would encourage you to take that chance anyhow. Not if you're some creepy, weird guy. But, I mean, just to, But for everyone, find somebody. If, if people always think you're creepy, then find another creepy guy to minister to. But for everyone to realize, you know, we're, we are supposed to be connecting with each other. We are supposed to be checking up on each other. That's what Christians do. And so he's just reminding them of that. And uh, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. It's not your church, it's God's church, which he purchased with his own blood. Every person that you ever know and every person that you'll ever meet in your life was so valuable to God that he let his son bleed and die for them. That's all I need to know about how valuable someone is. Now, society categorizes people and decides certain people are more valuable than others. And, but how do you top that? Jesus died for this person. Regardless, we all have issues. We're all messed up in different ways. And and it's easy to minister to some people, and it's really hard to minister to other people, but one thing they all have in common is that Jesus died for all of them, and they are his. He loves them. And so treat them that way. Treat them not as if they are a means to your end. Treat them as if they're not just somebody who's in your way, taking your time, you know, making you miss your uh, survivor, whatever's on after church. I never know because I TiVo it. But to instead just go, everybody here is somebody that's important to me, that matters. And it's amazing what it does to you when someone treats you like you matter. There are some people who get in such a rut of being treated like they don't matter that they just believe it themselves. And, and so they tend to live down to that kind of expectation. They tend to have a life that's just, um, well... I don't try much, I don't believe much, I don't go for much, I'm just like biding my time here. But his perspective was, hey guys, remember all those people that belong to God. He sent his son to die for all of them and, and he wants to save them freely. And so he says, for I know this, verse 29, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking twisted things 
to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. He said, after I'm gone, there's going to be weirdos. There are going to be people who come along and try to pull people away to their own deal. And even some of them are going to be people who believe the way you do. Some of them will come in with all kinds of really weird beliefs. Others will be just trying to get people to follow them. And they might even be from among you. They might even believe what you believe. But what they're doing is instead of tending to the flock of God, taking care of his precious sheep, instead they are fleecing the flock of God. And they may do it by preaching all the right things, but the thing that makes the difference is they are looking to take something from you, whereas I have always just wanted to give to you. And he says, that's the deal. Hustlers are going to come along. You need to expect this. You need to look out for them. There's nothing that makes me more upset, I don't think. Well, right along with it, anyone who hurts a child... um, I am just uh, repulsed by it. And I, and I have a real hard time loving someone who hurts a child. Um, but then somebody who uses the gospel, and they go like, yeah, it's free, God loves you, but you just need to pay me. I really have a hard time with that. Or people who form relationships that they can exploit by using little Jesus talk in order to make connection with people. As I've said before, you know, people that use Jesus as their wingman to pick up chicks, you know, it's just disgusting. Someone who loved people so much that he died for them, and you're going to use that for your own purposes? Um, Inexcusable, but he said, man, I've warned you about it day and night. I've cried over this. Verse 32, so... Now, brethren, I commend you to God. (laughs) I'm not just leaving you here to no one. He said, God is with you, and I'm entrusting you to him. I'm not afraid that if I'm not here, you're going to just, you know, go off the deep end. I trust God that you guys are going to figure this out. Now, these guys had had some good training, but certainly not the equivalent to a seminary education or anything like that. But he goes, "I, I trust God. And, you know, I trust God for all of you. Because I just can't always be there with you every day. I can remind you of his love and I can encourage you to care about others and represent him well. But ultimately, you know, I'm not your mother. And, and no one else is either. Well, if you have a mother, your mother is your mother. But, but you know how well that works. Um, but spiritually, you don't need somebody to to be your source of all help. As I've said before, um, you don't need to come to church with an umbilical cord and plug it in somewhere. No, God is there for you. The Spirit is inside of you. You can hear from Him. And that's what He's telling them ultimately. I'm trusting you to God and, uh, and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, all those who are being changed, who are set apart. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. I haven't wanted your money. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. 
Paul worked as a, as a tent maker much of the time while he was there in Ephesus. Now, that doesn't mean that pastors shouldn't get paid. It's just in his case, things were such a mess that he would rather just work. He was an itinerant. He didn't want to be stuck in one place. He moved around a lot. And so he had a way to make a living, and he just did it. In other places, he told churches that it's kind of, you should be ashamed of yourself that you didn't pay me, but because you didn't, I just worked. That's what I did. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Boy, nothing comes much closer to the heart of God, the heart of Jesus, than that little phrase. He goes, I've told you, you need to support the weak. You need to look for people who can't defend themselves, and you need to try to protect them and lift them up. You need to look for people who don't feel appreciated and help them to discover the appreciation that, that God has for them. You, you want to you don't want to be a front runner. You don't want to just latch on to somebody else who's getting a lot of attention and then you get the attention too. Better to go somewhere like Paul did where there was just a great need and there weren't a lot of people trying to do it. Paul was just not competitive at all. But he tried to tell them, look, if you help the weak, if you go to the poor, if you go to people who are hurt um, and you minister to them, you'll be really close to the center of God's heart always. And we get this from Jesus himself as he talked about the final judgment. And he, he said, there, I'm going to divide people up because people on one side, I'm going to say, hey, you are heading to judgment because when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. And when I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And when I was in prison, you didn't visit me. But all you people over on this side you're going to go into eternal bliss because when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And when I was naked, you gave me clothes. And when I was in prison, you came and visited me. And, and the people over here said, really? When did we do that? And the people over here are like, hey, wait a minute. Believe me, if you were hungry, we would, you could ask. We would have given you something to eat. Um, when were you even in prison, Jesus? And believe me, if you were naked, we would have given you clothes. So what's the deal? And Jesus said to both sides, he said, to the extent that you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. And that's Jesus identifying with the weak. He's going, if you find somebody who's hungry, feed them. If you find somebody who needs clothes, give it to them. If you find somebody who's in prison, visit them, and you will find me there. I will be there. I want to reach those people. Somebody who is in prison for the rest of their life or awaiting a death penalty gets a certain perspective that someone who is successful and life is going pretty well for them will never have. And ultimately what brings us all to Jesus is when we realize we need it. We need him. We can't do it on our own. And so desperation leads to opportunity for people who Jesus is really trying to reach. So that's where he goes and wants us to do the same. And it doesn't mean that you don't minister to people who are well off. Because some of the people who have the nicest houses and the 
fanciest cars and everything else are some of the most poor and pathetic people that you'll ever reach. They're, they may be poor and they just don't know it um, because they're poor and what matters. But it's the idea of looking for people with needs and, and trying to fill those needs. And that's, that's where the heart of Jesus is. And so he says, um, he said, it's more blessed to give than receive. You'll, you'll find more joy from giving than you ever will from receiving. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him down to the water, down to the ship, and he left. So a touching scene that we see here of these guys from Ephesus who Paul's just sharing his heart with them. It's one of the greatest addresses really in the Bible where he cared so much about these people that he just wanted to share his heart with them for one last time. What would you say to someone if you knew that it was going to be the last time you would ever see them? Say it now (laughs) when you have a chance because you just don't know if you're going to see someone again. Chapter 21, it came to pass that when we had departed from them and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera, and finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And so they left from uh, Miletus here. Kos was right here, and then headed off to Rhodes, and Patera, and now they're going to sail over to the side of the little island of Cyprus, which is off in the, in the Mediterranean, off the coast of Turkey. So heading, heading home. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left. And you can see by sailing that way, you could say they were on the right of Cyprus, but Cyprus was on the left of them. And we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. They had hitched a ride on a ship, and remember, Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem here, but this ship was going to Tyre, which is, is uh, you know, Israel is right here, Tyre is just right up here, Tyre and Sidon are there in present-day Lebanon, and so the ship was going there, so they went to Tyre, dumped off the stuff, and... Um, And when they got there, they found disciples and stayed there for seven days. And and those guys told Paul through the Spirit. I don't know exactly how that worked, but um, perhaps just through a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. But they told him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, this is kind of funny because the Spirit was speaking to them and knew that Paul, when he went to Jerusalem, was going to get imprisoned and, and treated horribly. But it's interesting because... It would seem that this was God's plan. God had made it clear to Paul. Probably what happened is the Lord told these people, if Paul goes to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen. So they assumed, well, then don't go to Jerusalem. But we don't know that the Spirit said don't go to Jerusalem. The Spirit just said when you go there, things are going to get ugly. And so we had come to the end of those days. We departed, went on our way, and they all accompanied us wives and children until we were out of the city. We knelt down on the shore and prayed. 
And when we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. So at that point, Luke and, and everybody else uh, had, uh, those guys, most of them ended up leaving, the whole party split up. We had finished our voyage from Tyre. We came to Ptolemais, greeted the brethren and stayed with them just one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, one of those um, deacons that were chosen originally. So they moved their way from they moved their way from here down to Ptolemais, and then down to the city of Caesarea, which is right, um, you know, fairly close to present-day Tel Aviv. Really, there on the Mediterranean coast, beautiful ancient city, a real Roman capital, and so. They came there to Caesarea and stayed with Philip. And um, as they were there at Philip's house, um, well, a guy had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And remember, down means up, the way we look at it. To them, up is towards Jerusalem. Down is anywhere that's not Jerusalem. So came from the area of Jerusalem, and when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, <coughs> bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver them into the hands of the Gentiles. So he does this little um, skit, kind of. He takes Paul's belt off, and he ties it around himself, and he says the owner of this belt, when he goes to Jerusalem, is going to get tied up, and the Jews and the Gentiles are going to give him a hard time and take him out. Now, when we heard these things, Luke is speaking, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem because the logical thing would be, oh, man, if this is going to happen, don't go there. Run. But like we said earlier, or like Paul described about himself, he wasn't one to run away from difficulty. And Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? <laughs> He's like doing the fake violin thing. Oh, yeah, you're breaking my heart. Um, he said, uh, For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. If they kill me, I don't care. I'm going to Jerusalem. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, The, Lord, the will of the Lord be done. They go, Okay, fine, if that's what you're going to do. Apparently, you just couldn't tell Paul much. Bunch of prophets are telling him what's going to happen, and he's still going to Jerusalem. After those days, we packed and went up to Jerusalem. Also, some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Manasson of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly, all the Christians who were there. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who by this time was kind of the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Um, you know, the Catholics see Peter as being the head of the church. A lot of times Protestants see Paul as the head of the church, but really in their perspective it was James because he stayed home. Peter and Paul were out traveling around all the time. So they came to where James was and all the elders, and when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He just shared what God was doing. 
And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. They said, man, there's a bunch of Jews that have been accepting Jesus, just seeing accepting him as their Messiah as being the logical next step for them within Judaism. But they've been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children or to walk according to the customs. So they said, look, when you're going to Jerusalem, there's going to be a lot of people who hate you, but some of them are even going to be Christians. Jewish Christians who have heard stories that were told by other Jewish people who claim that you tell people, oh, don't circumcise your kids, don't read Moses, don't follow the law. This was a total lie, but they're telling them, these guys, that's what they think about you. And so what then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. So he said, the, the, the leaders, the religious leaders, are certainly going to know you're there. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have a plan. We have four men who have taken a vow, probably the, uh, you know, some, they had a lot of different vows, perhaps the Nazarite vow because it involved shaving their heads. And so they said, take these guys and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. So look, take these guys with them, go offer a sacrifice, make a contribution to the temple. These guys and you can go and, and finish your vow there in Jerusalem, and everybody's going to know that you're still a good Jewish boy. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing. So he goes, we're not trying to get Gentiles to follow the Jewish law. That would be a tough sell to circumcise a bunch of adults just because they got saved. Except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols. Remember back in chapter 15, they had kind of made this. They go, okay, you Gentiles don't have to follow the law. You don't have to follow all of our customs, but stay away from stuff that's offered to idols because that's offensive to us. Don't drink blood because that grosses us out too. Stay away from things that are strangled and from sexual immorality. Don't go to the temple prostitutes and things like that. But other than that, don't worry about it. These are just the things that just make us sick. So he goes, that's all, that's all they're you were doing with the Gentiles. So then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, he entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Their vow was ending. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. So these guys who were up there in Asia Minor, who had hassled him, had come down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and everything. And, and they saw Paul and they started getting people stirred up about him. And they cried out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now, the guys he brought into the temple were not Gentiles. This was a lie, or at least a misunderstanding. It goes on to say they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they figured that he had brought him into the temple, but he actually hadn't. 
So they're rallying people and just saying, everything that this guy believes is totally against all of us and against this temple. Of course, the reality is everything that he was preaching was the fulfillment of everything they had ever believed or taught. It was, Paul taught the Old Testament and understood how that all was talking about Jesus who was to come. It's certainly not accurate to say that he tossed it out. Um, he preached from it. He declared it. He shared it as Jesus did, as we do. So they were just trying to say, oh, he's against us. Now, throughout history, there have been times that, that Christians have just been, they've hated the Jewish people. They've hated everything that's Jewish. Um, but that's just so uncharacteristic of all the leaders of the church in the beginning. And it's sickening. And I don't care. There are some great men like Luther and Calvin and others who God used in great ways, but they were horribly anti-Semitic and they hated the Jews. And anyone who's truly a Christian is going to love Jewish people and love their traditions and love their history and love their law and love their land, all of that, because they realize that... You wouldn't have Christianity if it wasn't for Judaism. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And so these guys were already kind of stirring this idea up that Paul had become somebody who hates Jews, which would be kind of really weird since he was a Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, um, a Pharisee. But they stirred the people up and... and uh, all the city was disturbed. People ran together and seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple. So they slammed the door shut. It was like a riot, so they shut everything down. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the Roman garrison there that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. The, the Romans kind of let the Jews do their own thing and honor their traditions, but at the same time, when things got out of hand, they had to step in and, and um, calm things down. Much like the Israeli army is today in Jerusalem with the, with the Muslims, who when they're up there at their Dome of the Rock or at the Mosque of Omar, um, they kind of have the Temple Mount to themselves, but when they start throwing rocks and making trouble, then the army has to come in and kind of calm things down. That was sort of the same role the Romans had in those days um, with the Jews. And he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. <laughs> Uh-oh, the, the cops are here. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked who he was and what he had done, that is Paul, and some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he couldn't even ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. They're still trying to tear him apart. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying away with him. They just wanted him dead. Then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, uh, can I speak to you? He said it in Greek. And the guy said, you speak Greek? And he, he said, I, I thought you were the Egyptian guy who a while back stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness. He goes, I, I don't even know who you were. I thought you were some Egyptian dude who had done something in the past. 
And Paul said, no, I'm a Jew. <laughs> Believe it or not, the Jews are trying to kill me, but I'm a Jew. Come from Tarsus in Cilicia. I'm a citizen of a significant city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. He goes, let me just talk to these people. I don't think they get it. So when he had given him permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language and said, brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. Powerful scene. Paul, who had been going through all these things, now he came to Jerusalem, and this is his moment. He gets attention wherever he goes, and the people are trying to stir up a problem with him, which brings in the Roman authorities, which ultimately, if they had just killed him quietly, nothing would have happened, but they were so worked up and passionate about it, they attracted a lot of attention to themselves. And so as they're trying to arrest him and get him out of there and find out what in the world is going on with this guy, he speaks since he was... Since he was, well, he probably spoke several languages. He probably spoke Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, and um, probably Latin as well. But he says to the guy, let me talk to these people. And now he starts to speak to them in Hebrew. Most of them didn't even know he was Jewish. Most of them would have been kind of shocked by this because they were just being stirred up by a handful of people who came from Turkey all the way down and we're whipping them up. And it was easy to get this mob thing going with these people. And so that was what was happening. But now we come and next week we'll continue the story as we see this speech that he gave to the Jewish people in their own language with his background of understanding them the way that he did. And from here on through the rest of the book of Acts, it's all focused on Paul's last opportunities to share the gospel with government authorities in the context of court and on his journey on the way to Rome to, to face his ultimate death um, where he would die a martyr's death there in Rome. But amazing guy, this Paul. If you saw him, you wouldn't think anything of him. He was a little tiny guy, big, huge nose, they say, and, and uh, eyes that you know, he couldn't hardly see, was squinting and his eyes would just run constantly because he has some sort of, you know, he had been stoned several times, so he had been beat up and lived a tough life. But here's this little guy, and God used him in such amazing ways. And he continued in joy. He continued with grace. Man, it's hard. When you get older and you get beat up a lot, it just tends to make you bitter. You just get sick of it all. And Paul was a guy who never stopped loving people. He never stopped looking out for the weak. He never stopped serving and ministering. He just wanted people to know the great thing that he had discovered, the fact that Jesus Christ loves them and that he died for them and that life can start fresh when you just give him permission to take over your life. And that was all that meant anything to Paul. He said, you know, that's all I do. I just preach the gospel. For with the, my whole life, I'm just telling people great news. And so it's fun to read about him doing this. We've read so many of the books that he wrote, but this is Luke's account of seeing Paul and all that he did. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this account, these exciting stories, these insights that we get as we read just 
things that Luke recorded that Paul had shared with the people who he cared about, especially with those elders in Ephesus. Lord, help us to get your heart too. Help us to care about weak. Help us to share with people your good news in a way that doesn't sound like we think we're better than they are. Help us just to declare to everyone that we know that you love them. And help us to act like we love them too because you love them. And make it not an act, but make it a work of your spirit in our hearts. Thank you for this journey that we're taking through the book of Acts. Um, And I know that you are still acting. You're still working. You're still wanting to reach people. And I pray that you would just use us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.